Well, our New Testament reading comes to us out of Colossians chapter 3. And um, our catechism lesson, uh, as we noted earlier, teaches that there are three benefits that we derive from Christ's ascension to heaven. It teaches three of the benefits. This isn't exhaustive. Uh, But first, He is our advocate in the presence of the Father. Second, we have our own flesh in heaven as a sure pledge that Christ, our head, will also take us, His members, up to Himself. And third, He sends His Spirit to us on earth as a corresponding pledge. By the Spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above where Christ is, sitting at God's right hand. I want to focus our worship, our sermon, this Ascension Day, on this third benefit. And there is an allusion here to Colossians 3. It's interesting, I think, that uh, Christ's ascension not only enables Him to send forth His Spirit, but the Catechism draws our attention to the fact that the, the Spirit is what empowers us to seek not earthly things, but things above. That remembering where Christ is, who is our glory, who is our life, is how the Spirit helps us become more heavenly-minded. So we'll look at three points uh, in this text. I'm going to read through verse 17, because I think the whole context of Paul's instruction here is important, but our focus will be on the first four verses. First, you have been raised with Christ... Second, your life is hidden with Christ. And third, when Christ appears, at that time also we will appear with him in glory. So this is God's holy word for us this evening. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all in all. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, 
do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Uh, Join me now in our prayer of illumination. Our Father, we have heard wonderful things out of thy word. We praise you for revealing Christ as the fulfillment of the Old Testament and ask you to give us your spirit so that we may understand the fullness of your truth. Amen. Please be seated. Well, I'm going to open tonight by uh, reading a further prayer. It's one of the prayers uh, from our books of uh, forms and prayers. And uh, it can be found, I don't know what page it will be found on, but I will find it very shortly. It is a, a prayer for Ascension Day. Let's open our uh, exposition of God's word with this prayer. Almighty God, although we could not ascend to your holy place, your Son descended to save us. After he won our redemption, he ascended to the seat of all authority and dominion at your right hand to plead our cause before your throne, to guarantee our place in heaven by taking our own flesh there in him, and to rule over all of his and our enemies. He did all this for our salvation and the glory of your holy name. Help us to receive and to make known throughout the world this good news, that Christ Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords, and fill our hearts with longing expectation for his return in power and glory to restore all things This we pray in the name of Christ, our King. Amen. Well, I saw a fellow uh, URC pastor uh, today on social media make a note of Ascension Day. He said, I find more joy leading worship and preaching on this occasion than on any other special service. More joy than Christmas. More joy than Easter. Why? Because the second Adam... Jesus Christ accomplished exactly what we were created to do, what our heart longs to do. He entered the heavenly holy of holies and cannot forfeit it. This provides confidence to all who are united to him through faith, just as surely as he entered glory without possibility of exile, all those who belong to him will one day do the same. Well, it's funny, you know, we don't, we don't think to uh, greet one another in the streets, Happy Ascension Day, you know, Merry Ascension Day, I don't know what the proper, uh, proper term would be. And yet, this day, as much as Christmas, or Easter, or Good Friday, marks a momentous occasion, a joyous occasion in our Christian faith. And what exactly is the Ascension? Perhaps we get a little confused and jumbled up with these events that come at the end of the Gospel, the beginning of the book of Acts. At the end of Luke's Gospel, we see Jesus, the risen Christ, on Easter Sunday. He's on the Emmaus Road and with his disciples. And he's teaching that all the Old Testament unfolded to them the necessity of the Messiah to suffer first and then enter into his glory. He's interpreting for them everything in the Law and Prophets, showing them that the whole Old Testament was about Him. 
And the key, one of the key things he says is that the disciples need to remain in Jerusalem until they receive power from on high to accomplish all of these things, to bear witness to this gospel truth to the ends of the earth, proclaiming repentance and forgiveness of sins to all nations. They were not able to bear witness to the risen Christ until he ascended to glory and sent forth the promised spirit. Now, John's gospel, in contrast to Luke's gospel, gives us a lot of information about this spirit, even before this point in Jesus' ministry. In, in the upper room discourse, uh, the night before he was crucified, Jesus says, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. He says, Little children, yet for a while I am with you. You will seek me, just as I said to the Jews. So now I say to you, Where I am going, you cannot come. And the disciples were deeply troubled by this. Well, well, Jesus, we've been following you these three years. What do you mean you're going somewhere we can't follow? Jesus really goes away. And his departure from his disciples is disappointing. He says in chapter 14, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms, and if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? Jesus is telling them, I must leave to prepare for you the kingdom, the place in my Father's mansion that you will inherit. Jesus' glorification, his entry into glory, requires him leaving, bodily leaving his church. A few verses later, he says, But I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you. The Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring into remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, let not your hearts be troubled. Jesus' departure from them, his going to prepare a place for them to inherit, to find rest and peace, is tied to the sending of the Spirit. And it says a few chapters later, chapter 16, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. He acknowledges that they will be sad, but he says, if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. Because I go to the Father, you will see me no longer. Sometimes we we spiritualize Jesus too much. He took on human flesh, and he still inhabits that human flesh. And we can't see him. He's not here. Because I go to the Father, and you will see me no longer, and I go concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Paul in Corinthians says that flesh and blood cannot inherit eternity. That the perishable cannot inherit the imperishable. And Jesus is saying, this world is under condemnation. The Spirit who is sent to us is the one who conveys to us the full power of the glorified Christ. Christ receives power and glory in heaven. And that power and glory is here on earth, ours through the Spirit. So Jesus taught about the kingdom of God for 40 days from Easter Sunday. That's five weeks and five days. That gets us to Thursday. It's funny, Ascension Day was on a Thursday last year. It'll be on a Thursday next year. 
Yet the disciples were still confused. Even though he taught about the kingdom of God for 40 days, they were still confused when he led them out to the Mount of Olives. And they said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? (laughs) He'd been explaining to them the heavenly nature of Of his kingdom. He told them that he was going to have to go away. He didn't come to establish a kingdom on earth in Israel. So don't worry if you still get a little confused sometime about the ascension. Even the disciples didn't get it. But by the time Pentecost came, 10 days from day 40 to day 50, by the time Pentecost came, which we'll celebrate a week from Sunday, Peter finally understood because he had received the spirit of understanding and knowledge. And so, Peter says in Acts 3.20, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that as Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled, repent and turn back. What's the character of the kingdom of God? It's this, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. And then listen to what he says, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring All the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Peter is preaching ten days after the ascension. And he says, Jesus will stay in heaven until the time of restoration. Here we see the pattern of Jesus' thought. The Messiah had to suffer and then enter his glory. And Peter realizes that the church is now called to be a witness And one of the important things about Peter's sermon is that it's so clear that now is not the time for restoring all things. The church's work is not about building a kingdom here on earth. We will, on that day of Christ's return, receive the kingdom. The city of God comes down from heaven in Revelation chapter 20 at the time of restoration. We are made like Christ, as Paul says, in his suffering. And so just like the the disciples, we long for that glory. We long for the restoration of all things. And rightly so. We were made for it. We were created for it. But Jesus and his spirit reminds us it is to our advantage that he has gone his way. That he might show forth his strength in us and weakness. So I want to look at the three points that Paul draws our attention to in these first four verses of Colossians 3 really quickly this night. Unpacking how his ascension to glory really uh, blesses us to our advantage. How it benefits us. First, Paul begins, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Paul begins with the resurrection. If then you have been raised with Christ. Brothers and sisters, here's the good news. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and especially if you are baptism, if you have been baptized, you have been raised with Christ. Think of the words of Ephesians chapter 2. When we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved, and he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places. This is true of us if we have believed If we have been baptized. Romans 6 talks about baptism in the same language. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. We too might walk in newness and life. We might be united with him in a resurrection like his. 
If we have died with Christ, we will also live with him, Paul says. Consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. And that's exactly uh, what Paul has been talking about in Colossians. In the previous chapter, he says, Having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Paul has just been speaking about our baptism, about how we are risen with Christ. And now in chapter 3, he says, If you have been raised with Christ, well, we have. And we have been raised with Christ, and that comes with the, the corollary of dying to the things of this world. In Colossians 2.20, if you look back on the page, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? If you've been baptized, you've been raised with Christ. And the good news of Easter, 40 days ago, the resurrection, is a prerequisite for the good news of the ascension. Right? It is the risen Christ that then ascends to glory. But sometimes, I think we tend to confuse Easter and the ascension. What's the difference really between resurrection glory and ascension glory? We have a hard time understanding the significance of the ascension of Christ, especially as it differs from the significance of Easter. And I would submit to you that it does. Death no longer has dominion over us. That's the truth of our resurrection. Ascension Day tells us what this new life in Christ looks like here and now. In this in-between time. Until that time of restoration. Ascension Day tells us that Christ is going away and will come back. Tells us that there is a season of the church's history in which we remain yet pilgrims. It tells us that a future glory is yet waiting for us. Now, as far as the apostles knew, as we saw in that first Ascension Day, after the resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday, he could have started the kingdom right then and there. That's why they they asked Lord, are you going to start it now? It's been 40 days. Okay, you know, 40 days, that's enough time. Let's get started. What does the ascension tell us when Jesus follows through on his promise to leave? It emphasizes what he had told Pilate before he died. My kingdom is not of this world. See how drawn we are, tempted we are to earthly kingdoms, to earthly power, to earthly glory. This is a kingdom of grace, not a kingdom of glory that Christ has established, that he rules and reigns over even now. And only upon Christ's return in the future does this kingdom become a kingdom of power and glory. Ascension Day thus emphasizes to us the truth of Jesus' words in Luke 24. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? He has entered his glory. We, brothers and sisters, have not. And that brings us to the second point, that our life is hidden with Christ. I want to reflect on this for a moment, what it means for our lives to be hidden with Christ. As a result of the resurrection, if then, as Paul writes, you've been raised with Christ, Paul offers the following instruction. Seek the things that are above where Christ is, 
seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. We could spend a whole series of sermons unpacking what it means to seek the things that are above. How do we go about our daily lives? Feeding ourselves, clothing ourselves, brushing our teeth, finding places to live, getting married, having families, bringing children into the world, raising them. What does it mean to go about our ordinary existence here on earth and yet do so in such a way that we seek the things above? Well, in Paul's immediate context, we need to look back in chapter 2, what he has been talking about. He's saying that the kingdom of God is not about following rules and regulations here and not and on earth. The kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, as he says in Romans 14, 17. But of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. The regulations, the laws that set Israel apart as a nation were types and shadows that are now overcome by the glorious light of day of our risen Lord and Savior. Christ is the reality, and He's not here on earth. He's in heaven. His glorious light is shining down from above. And I read all the way through verse 17 tonight, because Paul is reminding us to seek the things above, and then he's explaining what that means in the life of the believer. Not the matters of the flesh, not legalism, But his instruction has to do not with which kosher foods you have to eat or what days you have to make sacrifices or what days the feasts or festivals occur upon. But they're about matters of the Spirit then. He says, put on chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience. If one has a complaint, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule. Again, that rule and reign is referring to His throne, His glory in heaven. Rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Gratitude, brothers and sisters. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. This is what the kingdom of God's grace looks like. It's a description of our fellowship we have in the church. We have died to earthly things. And this is what Paul means when he says, your life is hidden with Christ in God. The most powerful thing we do is forgive one another as we've been forgiven. The most powerful thing we do is a sign of the Spirit's work in our heart is love one another when it's much easier to bear a grudge. When you think of the word life, when he says here, your life is hidden with Christ in God. He's not just talking about your heartbeat, that you're alive and not dead in that sense, not physical life. But he's talking in in the full sense of of your livelihood, everything, your abundance, your possessions, your career, your activity in the world. All of it is hidden with Christ in God. We read Psalm 87 
which we'll be preaching a few Sundays from now. And it closes with that line that the singers and dancers, those who dwell in that heavenly Zion city, they, they say, all my springs are in you. What does that poetic line mean? All the water, the living water, that waters my flocks, that waters my crops, that gives me food to eat, that gives me joy, that cleanses, that purifies. All the water, all my life is in Zion. God provides everything. It flows down from God's holy mountain. It reminds me of Jesus in John 4 when he greets the woman at the well. And he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well's deep. She's thinking of the glory of this world. Physical water. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Our life is hidden with Christ in God. Jesus said, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink in John 7. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's God's spirit giving us life from the ascended Christ. And John refers in in this chapter, in chapter 7, to the ascension. He says, this is what Jesus said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. He had to be glorified that we might have this life. And the life that we have is hidden with Christ in God. It's hidden. Not only is it above, not only is it in Christ, the positive life. You have that life. You have the life of the Savior, the second Adam. But it's hidden. It's not seen. It's not visible. Yes, We are risen with Christ. Yes, we are seated in the heavenlies with Him. But you all are sitting here in church. We are not yet glorified with Him. We are still suffering. Our life is hidden. Our glory is hidden. The church is is a small and weak thing. This is a tiny gathering by Washington, D.C. standards on a Thursday night. We are drawn and tempted so much in America to thinking that success means size, bigness, glory, triumphalism. It's always been a temptation in the church. Jesus walked around the temple and his disciples said, Look how glorious this temple is. Isn't it beautiful, Jesus? Look at the size of those stones. And Jesus said, Destroy this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. The glory of that temple was pointing to him and to his resurrection glory. Look how glorious it is. Constantine, the emperor, has seen a sign of the cross in the clouds. He has made the whole empire Christian. Look how glorious the holy Roman empire is. Look how glorious our church is. Have you ever been to St. Peter's in Rome? Look how massive it is. It's bigger than all the other cathedrals in the world. It must be the true and glorious temple of our Lord. Look how glorious our Christian nation is. We hear a lot of this 
triumphalism today. Look how glorious our Christian politicians are. Look how much good we can do. Look how much poverty we can eradicate. Jesus says about our efforts at feeding the poor, the poor you will always have with you. Our life, our glory is a hidden glory. The hiddenness of Christ's glory and of our glory, of the church's glory. It's why we long for it. And we should. We were made for it. We are called to it. We are called to pursue it. But we long for glory here and now, inevitably. We long for more than God gives us at this time. But the Spirit, as our catechism teaches, by the Spirit's power, we seek not earthly things, but the things above. This is the work of the Spirit in our hearts, to allow us to put to death the things of the flesh, to put to death the old man, and to allow our heavenly life, hidden in Christ, to grow more and more prominent in our hearts, in our desire, in our longing. We need the Spirit of Christ. And that Spirit works not abstractly, not disconnected from means, but He works through the pages of Scripture. He works through the preaching of the Word, through the sacraments of Christ's church. We need that Spirit to, to bind us more and more closely to our risen and ascended Lord and Savior and to stir in us a longing for Christ's heavenly glory. To be satisfied with that glory, hidden from the eyes of the world. To be content with it. And that brings us to our third brief point. Very simply, verse 4, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The book of Revelation, right? Apocalypse, is the revelation to John, but it's also the, the time here, what he's talking about, is, is the revealing of Christ, the appearing of Christ. And we think of Christ coming that great and glorious Redeemer on the day of judgment. And Paul says in clear parallel, when Christ appears, you will appear. When the glory of Christ comes, your glory will come. When we pray, as we did tonight, at Jesus' instruction in the Lord's Prayer, Thy kingdom come. What do you think when you pray that? I know sometimes I think, God... Life's been pretty rough these last few days. Can your kingdom come just a little bit more? <laughs> I'm like a little bit more good kingdom things going on this week than tough non-kingdom, hidden kingdom things. Bring a little bit of that kingdom glory here on earth. Bring me a little bit of that victory that Christ is ruling and reigning as I struggle this day. But Paul reminds us here of a starkly different truth. That there is a set time when our hidden life, our hidden glory, will become visible and apparent to all. When Christ appears, then at that time, you and your glory, your hidden life, will be revealed. Christ's glory is your glory. Christ's glory is now hidden. This is the theology of the cross. We see God now most in the suffering of his people, even as our Savior suffered for us. But it will appear. He will be revealed to all. And on that day, not a second before, you and Christ's church will appear in all your resplendent glory. You know that wonderful time at a wedding 
When you go and there's the anticipation, people are seeing friends and family, you're waiting in the crowd and the bride is hidden, right? And then you hear the strain of the wedding march and everyone stands up and they look and they crane their necks to see a woman beautifully adorned for her groom. The beauty of Christ Jesus will be shining through his church and in our faces on that day. We will, till then, be tempted by visions of earthly glory. Even our worship may disappoint us some. We might sing a little off-key. Sometimes the communion bread can be a little stale. (laughs) Sometimes we long for the big glorious productions. Yet Paul calls us to be content, to dwell here under the cross, worshiping a crucified and risen and ascended king, grateful, thankful for his saving work, and longing for its impending consummation, the coming glory of heaven to come. Just to read these verses, as Paul describes the worship of God's people. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called. Be thankful, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is our life and our pilgrim journey. Let's pray. Merciful God, we thank you that you have showered so many wonderful gifts upon us. It's not the gifts of a conquering kingdom. It's not the gifts of armies or soldiers or presidents or legislatures. It's the gifts of pastors and teachers and evangelists, missionaries, shepherds for your church. And we pray, dear Lord, that this would be our glory. The forgiveness of our sins, the bread and wine, the body and blood of Christ broken and shed for the forgiveness. That it would nourish us on our way as we await that coming glorious day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.